So honestly, uh, sometimes, even as a pastor, I read the Bible, and I get confused. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I, I mean, my relationship with the Bible started when I was probably two years old. You know, my parents gave me, like, one of those little kid Bibles with, like, the cartoon characters, um, or I, my sisters had a Precious, Precious Moments Bible. Did anyone have one of those? Yeah, those were pretty cool back in the day, and, um, you know, when you read the Bible, like, a lot of times you kind of, through going through children's ministry, you're exposed to, like, a very kidified and, like, desensitized version of the Bible, um, and then you grow up, and you start to, like, 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 think about the story of, like, Noah, you know, like, when you're a little kid, and you see the story of Noah, like, what do you see? You see a boat, and there's an old man, and he's smiling, and there's lots of animals, and there's a rainbow, and it's just this beautiful picture, but you forget that there was a flood, and it killed everybody, and there's literally, like, corpses floating in the water that you can't see underneath the happy-go-lucky picture of the rainbow and the animals. Uh, there's, like, yeah, literally, like, the corpse of every dead person on the planet. Um, there's things in the Bible that are strange, you know, there's, there's a talking snake on, like, page three of the Bible. Um, people rise from the dead. Um, sometimes I read a passage, and it doesn't really add up. You know, I'll read a passage, and I'm like, this is so strange, because I feel like the way God is depicted in this passage, it, like, doesn't line up with what I know to be true about Jesus. And I've learned that we need to face these passages and kind of work through them. Because God put them in the Bible for a reason. Like, they're there for a reason. He's trying to say something to us through these. And a lot of people, like, what they'll do, especially in, like, colleges and academics and stuff, there's people who, when they come to a passage in the Bible that they don't like, what they'll do is they'll just completely ignore it. Or they'll be like, oh, well, that wasn't really true. Like, that's, it's just a metaphor. Like, it didn't really happen. And I disagree. I mean, I, I think there's things that happen in the Bible that really did happen, and we can't just ignore them. We have to wrestle through them and figure out why they're in there. So that brings us to Acts chapter 5. Um, so let's go ahead and we'll just read the story and get into it, okay? Um, go back actually to chapter 4 and start in verse 32 because it kind of sets up the backstory. <coughs> so, all the believers were of one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own. But they shared everything they had, just like the people at the Yellow Deli. Um, <laughs> and with <laughs> great power, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there was no needy person among them. And from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. And they brought the money from the shales, the, shales <laughs> the sales, that's what I meant to say. They brought the money from the sales, and they put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which was a sweet nickname that meant son of encouragement, sold a field he had owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So this is a time of, like, great unity and generosity. I know we were, like, in chapter 3 and chapter 4 for, like, a million years, uh, and basically all that happened in those two chapters were uh, Peter and John healed a guy who was lame. Um, we talked about that several weeks ago. And then Peter and John got brought before the authorities, the religious police of the time, and they grilled them. They are like, why are you doing this? And whose power and whose name are you doing this on? And Peter and John were like, hey, man, we're doing this in the name of Jesus, and that's where the power is, and you just got to deal with it. 
Peter gets up in their face and he's like, sorry, religious police, but like you can throw us in jail. You can do whatever you want. But at the end of the day, we're going to preach Jesus. And so it's this time where the church is like unified. They're all together. They would meet in these little house churches, kind of like how we do. So they would meet in homes and then they'd go to the temple, which is crazy if you think about it, because the temple was the place where like, think about it. The temple wasn't the Christian church at the time. What was the temple? That was the place where the, the people who practiced Judaism met and they sacrificed their animals. These guys were pretty gutsy to, like, go to the temple. Um, there was this little courtyard called Solomon's Porch that they would meet at. Um, and so they were, like, right out in the open, like, just telling anyone and everyone about Jesus. And it says that they were so unified like, they would get together in homes like this, and it was this setup where basically everyone got taken care of. Like, there was no one needy. It would be like if we were here, and we got together, and one of you guys spoke up, and you're like, hey, guys, um, my family's doing really bad right now, and uh, we can't really afford food this month. And just everyone in the circle was like, oh, my gosh. Like, and they started bringing out their wallets, and they were like, hey, here, take some cash. Like, please, go buy some food. We love you. We support you. Like, we're a church family. Like, this is what we're here for. We're here to help you. It's Honestly, it's a beautiful thing. It's so rad to see that they have this sense of family. And Barnabas is a guy um, who his nickname was the son of encouragement. And he's this great example because he's giving out of his own heart. He's a guy who sold some land. Um, he had some property. He sells it, and he gives all the money to the church. And this wasn't even like a type of thing like where it was like, oh, yeah, give money to the church so the pastor can go buy a new car or, I guess, like a new camel back then. It was he sold the, he sold the stuff. He sold the house, and he gave the money to the church so that they could continue to help. It says literally there was no needy person in that church. Everyone took care of one another. So... You get the scene. It's a great time of unity. Everyone's taking care of one another. It's like, this is what church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be family. Everyone has one another's back. But then something kind of creeps into the mix, and it becomes this very strange story. So let's look at Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, those are great baby names if any of you guys are going to have kids in the next 10 years. Just keep that in mind. Ananias and Sapphira. So good. Um, Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they also sold some land. And then with his wife's full knowledge, he actually kept part of the money back for himself. And he brought the rest and he put it at the apostles' feet. So he sells this land. He's got some money. And he keeps like half of it for himself, right? But then he goes to the church and he says, hey, here's all the money from the property that I sold. So he's telling a lie. He's keeping half the money. The problem wasn't that he kept half the money. The problem was that he lied about it. So then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? You could do whatever you wanted with it, man. Like, what made you think of doing such a thing? You you didn't just lie to humans, but you lied to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. You guys ever seen that meme that's like, well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> that's exactly what this is right now. It's like he, he goes to the church. He's like, hey, I sold, I sold some land. Here's all the money. Peter's like, that's not all the money. And he's like, oh, you're right. And he just, he dies. It, this is, it's, it's, I mean, we're laughing, but it's, it's pretty intense. And it says, listen, and great fear 
seized all who heard what had happened. And then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. And about three hours later, his wife came in, and she didn't know what had happened. So Peter asked her, hey, Sapphira, uh, is this the price you and your husband got for the land? And she's like, yeah, that's the, that's the price. Peter's like, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out too. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And everybody was afraid. Just everybody in the church was freaked out. That's the, that's the Aaron translation. Everybody was freaked out of their minds. I, <laughs> okay. I don't know what you're talking about, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a joke. <laughs> it's, it's called humor. Um, okay, so <clears throat> here's the thing. I, <laughs> I struggle, honestly. I struggle with this passage. I, I really do because it raises so many questions. Like this does not seem like Jesus. Like all the time when Jesus is with the disciples, they're messing up all over the place. Like, Peter is saying the dumbest things left and right. They're prideful. There's this one point where uh, Jesus is, like, trying to tell his disciples about his plan. He's like, guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to come back from the dead. And it's all part of God's plan. And Peter's like, you'll never die, Lord. That'll never happen. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. It was intense, but, like, Jesus didn't, like, strike him down dead. Like, Jesus didn't kill him for saying the wrong thing. And so this this is very strange because it's the early church. Like, this is the beginning of the, the church movement of God's love and grace coming into the world and rescuing and redeeming people. And how does it kick off? Two people lie. And instead of Peter saying, hey, guys, I know you're lying. Um, let's get you into some biblical counseling and let's work through this and let's like get you to a place of repentance where you stop lying so much. No, they just straight up die. Like they're struck dead. So like, this raises all sorts of questions for me. Like, is this going to happen nowadays? Like, why doesn't this happen nowadays? Like, what, what happened here? And here's the thing. If the Bible's all just, like, made up fairy tales, then this is just, like, a moral lesson. You can just read it as, like, a metaphor and be like, oh, yeah, like, don't lie. Lying is bad. If you lie, you'll probably die at some point. Like, you can read it that way, but I don't think we should. I think we really need to say that if the Bible is true, and I think it is, then we have to wrestle with this. Are you guys, are you with me? Yeah? Okay. So, it's kind of a murder mystery. Question is, who killed them and why? And what we want to avoid here is overly simplistic answers. I hate overly simplistic answers. I've, I've always hated when I'd go to like a pastor or like in someone who's older than me and I'd find something in the Bible that was confusing and I'd ask, be like, why did this happen? And can you explain it? They'd just be like, well, brother, the Lord works in mysterious ways. And I'd just be like, no! Like, I know he does, but I think you just don't want to think about it. I think we need to avoid overly simplistic answers like, oh, well, they lied, therefore they are punished. Like, easy, right? No, I don't think it's that easy. And, and we like things simple, but when we consider stories like this and we think of them in a simple way, it becomes sort of a morality tale where it's just like, oh, like, here's the bad thing. Don't do it. Don't lie. And I think God is much more concerned with transformation of our hearts than he is about 
moral behavior modification. Um, you can change your behavior, but if you don't change your heart, Jesus says you haven't changed at all. So here's some objections that I've been thinking of about this story, just, just to kind of that easy, cheesy answer of just, well, they, they lied, and so they got what they deserve. One, number one, if you're taking notes, is we don't, we don't ever really see this again in the early church or now. Like, we don't see... Like, I have had several of you in this circle lie to me before. Like, especially when you're in junior high. Junior hires are liars, okay? Dirty, rotten liars. Um, Scott has probably had some of you guys lie to him before. You know, little white lies or even some big lies. You know, it's okay. Time has passed. We're all good. We're okay here. But... What if I just started, like, calling you all out individually <laughs> on times that you've lied? Um, but I wouldn't do that. But I've had times where, like, people have lied in church about stuff, and then they live. Like, they don't, they don't get struck down dead. So I think there's not really a precedent to say this is always going to happen all the time. It happened this one time for some sort of reason. So that's the question. What is it? Here's another objection. So if we're just going to say, well, they sinned, so they got what they deserved— Here's the thing. It's crazy. I was actually just uh, talking with Katie about this tonight. There are pastors out there who are, like, leading churches, and they're, like, openly sinning. Like, not, like, struggling with, like, sin. Like, every, everyone is. Like, every single person who's a Christian struggles with some sort of sin, like, just through, and throughout their life. But there's pastors out there who are, like, openly hateful or openly racist. There, there was this one pastor named Bob Jones who um, founded Bob Jones University. But he, I was reading, like, his notes from his Easter sermon from, like, 1955 or something like that. And the dude is, like, preaching, like, racist stuff in his Easter message. He's, like, talking about segregation and how, like, interracial couples shouldn't date. And I'm like, dude, this is your Easter message. Like, what are you doing? Like, just talk about Jesus coming out of the tomb. Like, what on earth? Um, There's pastors out there who are, like, sleeping with their secretaries or, like, stealing money from their churches. And they're getting up every Sunday and preaching, and they're not getting struck dead. Which, which is crazy if you look at this passage and what did these guys do? They, they told a lie and they got struck dead. So what's going on? There's, there's, there's this one pastor I was reading who's like all about money. I can't remember his name. Um, but he, no, probably. <laughs> it's not him. No, there, there's this one pastor who he was trying to get his church to donate to like raise like $3 million for what he called a Jesus jet. And what that was was this giant private jet so you could fly all around the world. But the bottom of the jet, the bottom of the jet had... Jesus's, and of course it's like white, white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus, but um, it's Jesus's face on the bottom of his plane, and he was like, I just think whenever we're flying over those poor countries, they'll look up and they'll see the Jesus jet, and they'll be so blessed to see Jesus's face shining down on them. And to that I say, dude, what on earth? Here's, no, I, I don't know, maybe, I hope not. Here's, here's objection number three. Here's objection number three. Are you with me? Objection number three. Was Jesus' death for sin not enough? Because think about it. The Bible says Jesus died for our sins. Like, he paid the price for all of our sins. And so if, if that's the case, then why are people getting struck dead for their sins when Jesus died for sins? Like, this has some scary implications. It's, it's, it's confusing. And it had to be confusing for the disciples because they just came from the old system being over. Like the veil tore in the temple when Jesus died on the cross. They don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. Like to them, they were entering into like this new age of grace. And then all of a sudden, 
these people died for their sin. So the next question I want to ask is, who killed them? Here's the first suspect in the murder mystery. It'd be God. Did God kill them? Well, here's the thing. In the text, it doesn't say anywhere that God struck them dead. There's nowhere in the text that says, and God struck them dead, or the Holy Spirit like consumed them and like gave them a heart attack. There's nothing in the text that says that. All Peter says is, well, when he talks to Ananias, he doesn't even say, hey, you're going to die. He's just like, dude, why'd you lie? You lied to God. And then he dies. And then when Sapphira comes in, Peter, like, doesn't cast some crazy, like, disciple spell on her. Like, Peter doesn't have, like, the power to, like, kill people with his words. What Peter gets is a prophetic vision, and he sees the future. And he's talking to Anna, or Sapphira, and he sees, like, a little flash forward in his mind. God shows him what's going to happen. And he's like, oh, man, Sapphira, like... Uh, what same thing that happened to your husband, it's going to happen to you too. And then she dies. But that, it wasn't God who killed him in that moment because there's nothing in the text that says it. And then it wasn't Peter. Like Peter didn't kill him. And here's the thing. Like what I'm not saying is that like God doesn't kill people for their sin. He does. He did all the time in the Old Testament. Um, he flooded the world, right? He killed people for their sin. But when Jesus came on the scene, what happened is what I call, it's a paradigm shift. What that means is things were once one way, and then everything changed. When Jesus showed up, everything changed. Before Jesus, people were required to die for their sins. It was the punishment, and all you could do to save yourself was animal sacrifices all the time. But when Jesus showed up, he made a way so that people didn't have to die as punishment for their sins. So if it's not God, if it's not Peter, as I was studying this passage, I stumbled across some commentaries and I was reading it, and I think the the right culprit would be Satan. Um, Listen to this. In John 10.10, it says that Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And then I'm going to read from you guys a commentary that I was reading. It's significant that Peter points out that Ananias had allowed Satan to fill his heart suggesting that his lying to the Holy Spirit was not an isolated evil act by a man who was otherwise blameless. No, Ananias was somebody who had given his heart over to Satan and had been filled. Do you guys remember another character in the book of the Gospels that Jesus said something very similar to about Satan filling their heart? Anybody? Nope, starts with a J. Judas. Judas. The night that Judas betrayed Jesus, it says that Judas's heart was filled with Satan as well. Now, here's the thing. So, this is how it works. And for some of you guys, you're going to be like, it's the same thing. I don't think so. We could look at it one way and say God killed them, but what I, what I actually think is more accurate is that Satan killed them and God allowed it to happen. Because the reality is, Satan does things in the world. Like, Satan kills people all the time. Satan attacks people. Like, I was listening to Evan Wickham talk about this in a recent message, and he was talking about how some of us are so, like, closed off and, like, we don't even think about the spiritual realm. Um, We were born into a war that was going on before the world even existed. Like, Star Wars, I talked about this on Sunday. The the metaphor that Evan uses is, it's a Star Wars one, which I love because I love Star Wars, but he's talking about how... um, you know, when you pop in the DVD of Star Wars Episode Four back in the day, well, actually, it wouldn't be a DVD, it'd be a VHS. So if you pop in the VHS tape of Star Wars Episode Four, which was the first one that came out, it's like it opens up on this Imperial cruiser, and then there's Princess Leia, and she's trying to hide the plans. 
from Darth Vader, and Darth Vader's running around trying to get the plans, and there's like R2-D2 and C-3PO and like all this stuff. And you're like, okay, I don't really understand what's going on. And what you don't realize is there's stuff that happened before this movie, right? Episode one, two, and three. Like, you have no idea who Anakin Skywalker is. You have no idea what the Clone Wars were. You, like, you don't know any of that stuff if you start with episode four, like they did back in the 70s. So when the Bible starts, like, we don't really understand. If you just read the Bible and you say, in the beginning, God created the world, what you're forgetting is there's a whole other chapter of the story that happened before the world was even made, which was the war between God and Satan, demons and angels. Satan hates humans. Like, he hates us. His demons hate us. They, they don't want you guys to succeed. They don't want you to have lives that are full of hope and joy and love. And so when you're, like, so many people are afraid of demons possessing them. Like, so many people are like, oh, Ouija boards, it's Halloween, oh no, like, I don't want a demon. Like, I think Satan probably honestly, like, laughs at the whole Ouija board thing. Like, he thinks it's so stupid. You know what Satan's strategy really is? He tempts you. And he gets you to believe lies about God and about sin that aren't true. What Satan does is he consumes your mind and he gets you to listen to the lies that he is telling. And what happens is when people give themselves to Satan, when people like submit themselves to sin in their life, what God does a lot of times is he removes his hand of protection and allows us to face the consequences of our sin. That's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, I think. I think Satan was just waiting to kill them. He was just excited to go in and destroy them, and God was protecting them. But then Ananias and Sapphira, they gave themselves into this like, place where they were just like, oh, we just want to be awesome. Like We want people to look at us and think we're so cool. We want people to look at us and think, like, oh, they're so giving. They're so amazing. Like, Remember, they didn't have to give all the money. Like They could have literally given half the money and said, hey, here's half the money. But they lied. And it wasn't just a simple lie. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't like, oh, like I didn't calculate the numbers right. Look, I messed up. And like God doesn't kill people for simple calculation mistakes. He doesn't allow Satan to kill for simple calculation mistakes. No, this was their hearts were consumed with hypocrisy. And so God removed his hand of protection and he allowed the evil to consume them. Um, think about this. <clears throat> Death operates like gravity for a ball to drop we don't really need to push it down we simply need to release it ananias and sapphira they were in the hands of god the many commentators might and myself included believe that they were saved that they were christians they were in the hands of god but they were pushing away from god and they didn't want to be a part of what god was doing they wanted to follow their own path and so god released them which is crazy scary when you think about it i've been thinking about this text all month i knew i had to teach it it's just it's a crazy text um i called my dad i called evan i called jason duff and i've just been talking to different guys and um this is where i've landed this is what i think this is all about i think the reason god allowed this to happen was because it was a warning to the early church he allowed something really intense and gnarly that doesn't happen a lot nowadays like you as Christians, you've probably sinned this week. I've sinned this week. God didn't strike me dead, or he didn't allow Satan to kill me. He is gracious, and he's allowed me to live. He's allowed you to live, even though we sin. But for Ananias and Sapphira, God wanted this to be a warning to the early church about the effects of sin. He wanted them to realize, hey, you're saved. 
like you're like you're blessed like you're going to heaven but but don't take sin lightly even something as simple as a lie don't take it lightly and and here is really what this passage illustrates to me it illustrates that the effects of sin will destroy us if we give ourselves to sin like think about this a lot of times what we think is because we're Christians, we have a free pass. Like we think, oh, I'm a Christian, so therefore I'll sin and then I will ask for forgiveness and then I'll be okay. But here's the thing. See, it's not so much that, you know, if you go out and lie to your parents, God's gonna allow Satan to kill you. But if you continue to live a lifestyle where you're lying all the time, just lying to make yourself look better, lying to make yourself rise up the social ladder, lying to get out of trouble with your parents, and you just go down this path where like lying becomes such a part of your life that every day you're lying about something, eventually all of that sin will catch up to you. And if you reject the Lord and you push away from him, God will allow the consequences of your lies to catch up to you. No one ever woke up one day and said, I'm gonna be a murderer. No one ever woke up one day and said, I'm gonna cheat on my wife. No one ever woke up one day and said, I'm gonna be a drug addict. But they spent year after year making smaller and small, small compromises. And eventually, God allowed the consequences of those sin to catch up to them. And Satan gets in and he does his work. This is why we need to realize that the way of Jesus is a way of repentance, of constantly repenting from that bad mindset of just, oh yeah, I'll sin and ask for forgiveness, that's fine, I'll do it again tomorrow. We need to hate sin. We need to realize that sin is our enemy. We need to run from sin and run to the Lord. In The Problem of Pain, which is a book I'm reading right now, C.S. Lewis says this, we have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sin. I've heard others, and I've heard myself, recounting cruelties and lies committed when I was a child as if they were no concern of the present speaker, even laughing about it. But mere time does nothing either to the fact, to the guilt of a sin. The guilt is washed out not by time, but by the repentance and blood of Christ. If we have repented these early sins, we should remember the price of our forgiveness and be humble. It's really important really important for us to take sin seriously. Now, here's another thing to think about. So, Ananias, what did Peter say? Ananias, you've, you've allowed Satan to fill your heart. What does that mean? You've allowed Satan to fill your heart. Like, what, the places my mind goes to is like demon possession. You know, like, oh, he was demon possessed. Like, there's, there's been times where I've even thought of Judas that way. Like, oh, you know, it wasn't Judas. Like, he wasn't in control. Like, he was demon possessed, and that's why he did what he did. You know, it's that whole thing of like, oh, the devil made me do it. I don't know if you've ever been there, if you've ever sinned or messed up, and you're like, oh, the devil made me do it. I don't think that's how it works. There's an interesting study of the word heart in the Hebrew, like what the Hebrew thought of the word heart. I'm gonna play this video for you guys, and um, then we're gonna continue to talk about this. But this is from the Bible Project. So he says, he says to him, why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart? We're gonna watch this video, and then we're gonna look more into like what, what that actually means. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, 
with all of your soul and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the fourth key word in this prayer, heart, which in Hebrew is sometimes pronounced levav, or more often in a shorter form, lev. Now, different cultures throughout history have had different conceptions of how the human body works, and this is also true of the ancient Israelite writers of the Bible. They knew that the heart was an organ in the chest that sustains life. There's mention of a heart attack in the Bible, Naval, whose heart died inside of him and he became like stone. But the biblical authors talk about the heart in many other ways that might seem strange to modern readers, and that's because these Israelites had no concept of the brain or any word for it. They imagined that all of a human's intellectual activity takes place in the heart. For example, you know with your heart in the Bible. Your heart is where you understand and make connections. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom dwells in the heart. And your heart is what you use to discern between truth and error, like Solomon did when he was king. So the heart is where you think and make sense of the world, and it's where you do more. In the Bible, the heart is where you feel emotions. You feel pain in your heart, like Hannah did when she couldn't have any children. In fact, the phrase, a broken heart, comes from ancient biblical Hebrew. You also experience fear in your heart. Your heart can melt or be distressed. Your heart can even be depressed. But then on the flip side, your heart is where you experience joy. In Hebrew, to be happy is to be good of heart or to have a heart of joy. So the heart is the generator of physical life. It's also the center of your intellectual and emotional life. And there's more. In biblical Hebrew, the heart is where you make choices motivated by your desires. So David had it in his heart to build a temple for God. Your heart is where your affections are centered. They're called the desires of your heart. And if you really want something and go after it, it's like what Nathan said to David, whatever is in your heart, go and do it. So then, in the Bible, the heart is the center of all parts of human existence, as in the well-known proverb, guard your heart because from it flows your whole life. Now, the prophet Jeremiah believed that the human heart was fundamentally broken. He said, the heart of a human is deceitful above all, irreversibly sick. Who can even understand it? He had watched a whole generation turn away from God. They started sacrificing their children as if that were a good thing. So this is why in the imagination of the Hebrew prophets, the only hope for humanity is the total renewal of the human heart. Moses predicted that if Israel was ever going to love their God, their heart would need to be circumcised, which is a very vivid and surprising metaphor about removing evil and stubbornness from the human heart. David, after he committed murder and adultery, pleads with God to create in me a pure heart. The prophet Ezekiel hoped for a day when God would remove the heart of stone and give his people a new heart of soft flesh, which is very similar to Jeremiah's hope that God would write the commands of the Torah on the hearts of his people. And that brings us all the way back to the Shema. Every day, God's people are called to devote to God their whole body and mind, their feelings and their desires, their future and their failures. This is what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Good stuff, huh? Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's a good explanation of what heart actually means. It's not your blood pumping vessel. Um, the way that the Bible authors understood the word heart was it's the center of who you are. It's your thoughts. It's your emotions. It's, it's everything is linked together in that place of who you are in the heart. And so, like, where do we ask Jesus to be, right? We ask Jesus into our aware. Heart, right. 
So it's like you're asking Jesus not to live inside your chest. You're asking, that's what I thought when I was a little kid. Oh, Jesus is in my heart. He lives in my blood pumping vessel. No, you ask Jesus to be at the center of your thoughts and your emotions and everything about who you are. That's why when you fall in love, like when you're in love with somebody, that person seems to be at the center of your your thoughts and your emotions. Like when, when you get out of bed in the morning, like they're the first person that pops in your head and you're like, oh, I can't wait to see him or her. Jesus, that's who he wants to be to us. But sometimes we can have a shared heart space and we allow the enemy into our heart. We allow Satan and his desires into our heart. And so here's the thing. If you've ever been, I don't know if you've ever been worried about being demon possessed or like possessed by Satan. Um, I don't think as a Christian you should worry about that because you can't become demon possessed as a Christian to the sense where you're going to be on the street like foaming at the mouth and like talking like a crazy person. If you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about the spirit of Satan filling you, right? But here's what you should be worried about. Satan can't possess you. He can't possess your spirit, but he can possess your desires. And here's what I mean by that. You can be a Christian and still be so swept up in your own sin and temptations that all of a sudden they start to overtake your heart. So instead of wanting Jesus and what he wants and what's best, you just want to commit the sins that you want to commit. That is allowing the enemy to possess your heart. And I mean, even people like Justin Bieber know the truth of this. Um, I was uh, reading a quote from him the other day and no, seriously, like, and you know, Bieber, he's rad. You know, I got to give him props. He's working on his faith. You know, I mean, he's got lots of ups and downs. I used to write him off, you know, but I've seen over the years that he actually is trying to follow Jesus, which is awesome. Um, but he had a quote recently where he basically said, Instagram is from the devil. And what he meant by that is, and, and you know, he still has it. He still posts on there. He just posted a funny picture of a dog the other day. Um, but uh, what he meant by that quote <laughs> What he meant by that quote when he said Instagram is from the devil is it's a window to basically allowing the enemy to fill your heart. If you get swept up, if you pop up Instagram or social media in any form and all of a sudden you're just, it's just this window to like jealousy and envy and looking at other people's life and saying, I wish I had what they had. I wish I had his girlfriend. I wish I had her boy or yeah, her boyfriend. I wish I had that. I, I wish I went on that vacation they went on. I wish I had their clothes. Like, I wish I had their body, their looks, their hair, their money. Like, and then lust. You know, you pull up social media and it's just you're flooded with images that cause you to have desires that are not from the Lord. Social media can be a window into allowing the enemy to fill your heart. And I'm not, I'm not saying we should all delete our social media um, or just like be people who like have flip phones. Like, you know, the internet's here to stay. It's a tool. It can be used for good or evil. The question is, are we allowing it to be a tool that is filling our hearts with the enemy? Now, here is the question. Why did God do this? Like, why did God allow Satan to kill them? I think, like I said, God is using them as in a living illustration to take sin seriously. What does the Bible say? The wages of sin is what? Death. Now, in Proverbs 8.36, he says, All who fail to find me harm themselves. Those who hate me love death. That's what the Lord says 
in Proverbs. Those who fail to find me harm themselves. Those who hate me love death. This is not like literal lovers of death, like that movie Coco, where like everyone's like stoked to be dead. And you've seen that new Disney movie? It's like a Pixar movie where it's like everyone's a skeleton. There's a new, yeah, there's a new movie. Yeah, Mexican heritage. I'm just making an illustration. Okay. <laughs> no, it's not at all. Um, here's the thing. He's not talking about people who are literal death lovers. Okay, let me read that proverb again. All who fail to find me harm themselves. Those who hate me love death. These are not people who like are stoked on death and they're like putting on the black eyeliner and like listening to death metal and they're like, I love death and dying. It's That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is what you love seems to be good, but actually it's poison. It's saying if you reject God, you actually love death. You don't look at it that way. You look at your sin and you say, this gives me life. This makes me stoked. This makes me fulfilled. But really it's poison. You've become a death lover. Um, 17 year old or 72 year old. Uh, let me see if I, uh, yeah, it's a huge difference. <laughs> He's either 17 or 72. Um, 72 year old Slobodan Praljak. He's a Bosnian general. He was, yeah, he's a Bosnian general, dude. Dude, look, check him out. Look at him. Yeah. It's a country named Bosnia. Okay, ch- check this out. This is in the news the other day, okay? I know you guys don't read the news, neither do I. I don't even know how I got this. But so there's this guy named Slobodan, right? And when he was. Party foul. I'll wait for you to come back. Because this story is. This story is too good, okay? Just make your way back. It's okay. Just come on back. It's all good. It's all good. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. Okay. All right. I'll wait. I'll wait for you. Yeah, come on back over. You're good. I got to tell you about Slobodan. I know, right? I don't even know where Bosnia is. Does anyone know where Bosnia is? Oh, uh, well, he's pretty white, dude. Well, actually, there's lots of white people in South Africa. Yeah, you're right. And they speak with British accents. Okay. I feel like I need to pray again. I'm almost done, okay? All right. So, 72-year-old Slobodan Praljak was a Bosnian war general. And during his time, he created or he committed war crimes, okay? He did, like, unspeakable things killed a bunch of people, genocide, and his own country found him guilty. Just recently, they brought him in, and they tried him before court, and they said, you are guilty, and you're going to spend 20 years in jail. Do you know what he did? This is crazy. They got this on, on live footage. He stands up, and he shouts, Slobodan Praljak is not a war criminal. I reject your verdict. Then he pulls out a small glass of poison, drinks it, and dies there in the courtroom. It's crazy. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is how I relate it. This is how I relate it, okay? There's, yeah, there's a point. I'm not just telling a random story. There's people out there in the world where God, as the judge, confronts them. Listen, God confronts them and says, hey, you're a sinner, and you need Jesus, and you need to repent. And you know what their reaction is? It's, I'm not a sinner. 
What are you talking about? I'm a good person. I donate to charity. I'm a good husband or father. I am a straight A student. I've got my whole life together. Why on earth would I need Jesus? And they're, they're just like that war general because every single person on the planet has committed crimes against God. Any sin out there is deserving of death. That's the wages of sin. And so when people reject the gospel, what they're doing is they're saying, I am not a sinner. I reject your verdict, God. And then they go and continue to live their life. And what they're doing is they're drinking the poison. They're saying, I reject that verdict. I'm going to do what I want to do. And when they do what they want to do, it leads to death. What did the Bible say about Adam and Eve? What did, what did God say? If you eat from that fruit of that tree, you will surely die. Was it really that big of a sin for Adam and Eve to eat that fruit? Think about it. Like, was it like they murdered somebody in the Garden of Eden and like tried to cover it up? No, they just disobeyed. God said, don't eat that food. And they're like, oh, that food looks good. I think I'll eat it. Like, how many of you guys have ever done that? When your mom's like, hey, don't eat these cookies until your dad comes home. And you're like, okay, mom, I won't. And then your mom like leaves the room. And you're like, haha, she won't notice this one being gone. I've straight up done that. You know what? My, my wife bought these cookies for youth group. And as she was leaving yesterday, she told me, Aaron, I'm leaving. Don't eat these cookies. Wait till youth group. And I was like, okay, babe. And literally, as soon as she drove off, I opened up the bag (laughs) and I ate a cookie. (laughs) Because I was like, it doesn't matter. (laughs) You know, I would just eat one at the house anyway. So anyway, um, but that's, that's rebellion. That's sin. I am a sinner. I'm confessing to you right now my deep, dark sins of eating cookies when my wife says not to. No, she never will. <laughs> uh, no, she doesn't. She doesn't listen to these. Um, okay. Here's the realization, though. Like, I know we're laughing. I know there's some funny stuff in here. But here's the realization that we need to have. Every sin that you or I commit deserves death. Like, do, you, do we honestly realize that? Like, when you are mean to your mom or dad, when you cheat on your homework, you know? When you give in to temptation and you look at something that you shouldn't or you think something that you shouldn't. When you steal or when you are disrespectful to authority, you know, a teacher that you don't like or when you gossip about a friend, maybe they hurt you, you know, maybe they did something that was hard for you but, and then you turn around, you go to your friends and you start talking about what a jerk they are, you know? We all do these kind of things. We're all sinners. I, I, I literally have done pretty much all of these, right, in my own life at different times. So do we honestly realize that every sin deserves death? Like every sin, like if, if you have sinned today and you were in the Garden of Eden and you sinned that sin that you sinned today, you would have been the one that doomed all of humanity. Like you would have been the one cast out of the Garden of Eden right? Sin is heavy. And a lot of times I don't think of it that way. I've said this before, but I think of sin as like a little puppy that like peed on the carpet. I'm like, oh, it's so cute. You know, it'll, it'll get out of it. It'll grow. You know, it'll, it'll be fine. We don't think of sin as what it really is. It's not a little puppy that pees in the carpet. It's a dog with rabies trying to kill everyone in sight. We need to take sin seriously. And This is where I also see the crazy extent of grace. Because seeing Ananias and Sapphira killed for this little sin of lying, 
realizing that every time I sin, I deserve exactly what Ananias and Sapphira got, and then seeing the grace, seeing that I am spared from death every time I sin, and then thinking about Jesus hanging on the cross, bleeding for me, just the, the pain in his face and the, and the pain in his body, and just everything in him was just, his, his human body was just screaming, get me off this cross, get me off this cross, but he stayed on it because he loved us. Man, that makes me wanna take sin seriously. Like that makes me, when I sin, to want to say, not just like, oh, I'll try better tomorrow. That makes me wanna fall on my knees and say, God, help me repent. Like help me turn away from this sin. If, if I need to go to somebody and confess and say, will you pray for me? Which I've done in my life. I have guys in my life that I've gone to and I said, hey, I've screwed up in this area of my life. Can you please pray for me? Or even like, there's people in my life where like, just as a husband, when I'm a stupid husband and I do stupid things and I'm rude to my wife or, or when, I'm get, when I get angry, you know, and I get in a fight with my wife that I shouldn't get and it's my fault and I'm selfish. I have a group of guys that I actually text and I'm like, hey, can you guys just pray for me because I'm, I'm sinning right now as a husband. I'm not being a good husband right now. That's healthy. Like I'm not, I'm not embarrassed to share that with you because I want to tell you that I am your pastor and I need that. I need people in my life praying for me. I need people in my life who know what's up with me and who can be there to say, hey man, you're trying to repent, we're trying to repent. Let's walk away from sin together with Jesus. If any of you guys here tonight are flying solo, you know, and you're sinning in your life and, and you just feel like your sin is overwhelming you and you're like, I can't tell anybody because I'll be too embarrassed. Like, please understand that God hates sin so much and he loves you so much and he wants you to be free from sin. But we can't do it alone. We need the Lord and we need other people's help. And you know, with Ananias and Sapphira, I really think that what we have here is an example of God's severe mercy. You know? And that's really hard for me actually to say because like, I don't think of it that way at first. Like, again, Stuff in the Bible troubles me. I read this passage and I'm like, God, what on earth? Why did you kill them? That's not fair. And then I forget that God flooded the entire world once. God is just, what he does is right. And then I think about the flood and I'm like, God, you killed everybody. Like, how could you do that? And then I remember that from the beginning of time, God always wanted to make a way where human beings didn't have to die for their sin. And that's why he sent Jesus. And that's why Jesus bled. That's why Jesus died. God is just, but he's also merciful. And you know what? I, I do believe that Ananias and Sapphira were saved. And I think when they died, I think they showed up and they saw Jesus. And they saw him in heaven. And I think they probably like panicked at first, you know, because they just were killed for sinning. And then they see Jesus, right? And he's there. They're like, oh my gosh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. Like, don't send us to hell. And I think Jesus embraced them and said, welcome into my presence. I love you, I forgive you. I used what happened in your situation as an example to the rest of the church because I want them to take sin seriously. But there's grace for you now. And now you're perfect. And now you don't have to live in sin anymore. And that's amazing. Because heaven is so much better than earth. So really, compared to the rest of the Christians who got fed to the lions and like crucified upside down, these guys got a pretty good deal. They just died instantly. I think it helps me to see it this way 
that it's not God just angry and judging sinners. God does everything he does for a purpose. And I think his purpose here was because he wanted the early Christians to see that sin is serious. And so that's the warning for our, our, our lives today. We need to take sin seriously because it can destroy us. Again, being a Christian, yes, you'll be saved. Yes, you'll go to heaven. But that does not guarantee that you won't have a wasted life if you keep living in sin. If you're here today and you're following Jesus and you're saved, but you're giving into sin over and over and over again and you're not asking for help and you're not repenting and you're not turning to the Lord and you're like, this is fine, it's just a phase, it's just who I am right now, I'll grow out of it. Or maybe you're even sinning and you're like, yeah, I know I'm sinning, but there's literally no way I can resist this temptation, so I'm just gonna keep doing it. If that is you right now, there's nothing to guarantee that you won't have a saved soul but a wasted life, that you won't throw away everything that God is trying to do in your life right now. That's what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. They allowed their hearts, the center of who they are, to be possessed by the devil. Not their spirits, but their hearts. The first time I ever taught this message, I focused on hypocrisy and just lying. And just I taught it in junior high, and I was like, just, yeah, don't lie. But I really don't think that's the point that the, the biblical authors are trying to make here. I think the point is we need to take sin seriously, realize that God takes sin seriously, realize there's grace, but also realize that God has called us to the way of Jesus, which is a way of repentance. It's a way of when we sin, not just letting it stick around, but walking away from it with Jesus, taking his hand and walking out, not allowing it to consume us, but allowing the Holy Spirit to consume us allowing the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, allowing those things to possess our heart. So that's my question for you guys today. What's possessing your heart right now? Are you fully given to the Lord right now? Or is there some shared space in your heart? Maybe you're here tonight and maybe you're fully given to the enemy. You're saved, but right now you are living in sin and you are just rebelling and going down a path. Maybe no one even knows. Maybe your parents don't even know. Like maybe it's not like this outright rebellion against your parents. You're like, I'm gonna do whatever I want, mom, forget you, dad. But you're, maybe it's something hidden, but you're just, you're going for it. You're chasing after that sin. You're just full blown running after it. If that's you tonight, I wanna encourage you, get off that path, okay? But maybe you're here tonight and maybe there's some shared space in your heart. Maybe it's, you know, half Jesus, but the enemy's in there and there's stuff that he's doing. Or maybe it's, you know, 75% Jesus and it's just 25% the enemy. Hey, that's enough for the enemy to do some serious damage, okay? Whatever it is, don't allow it to stay. Go to the Lord, lay it at his feet, repent. Jesus makes it so easy for us to repent. You don't have to climb some spiritual mountain. You just come and you lay your burdens at his feet. You confess to Jesus it's highly recommended you let someone else know who's a Christian who loves you and just who can pray for you. This has always been a group where there's no judgment. I've had so many people tell me so many crazy things over the years. I've never once said, how dare you get out and never come back. I've always said, oh my gosh, let me pray for you. That must be so hard to be going through that. You need to turn to the Lord right now. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. <clears throat> we thank you for this time. God, I thank you. 
that you're so gracious. And God, at first glance at this passage, you don't seem gracious because two people die for lying. And when I read this, I struggle because I don't like what I read. But God, I know that you didn't write the Bible so that I would like every part of it and get warm, fuzzy feelings, but you wrote the Bible to show me who you are, but also to show me what sin is, to show us what sin can do, to show us the effects of sin. And God, I thank you for the story of Ananias and Sapphira. God, while I'm so grateful that you don't do this now, you don't strike us down dead for lying and that sort of thing, you, you allow us to continue in our sin, Lord, but sometimes that allowance sends us down a dark path and we end up getting destroyed, just like Ananias and Sapphira. With them, it happened quickly. For some of us, it takes a long time. God, I thank you for this warning to take sin seriously. Help us to do that, God. Help us to repent daily, not just at camp once a year, but help us to live lives of repentance. God, I pray for the people here who feel like they've got it together, the people here who are probably like me when I was in high school, uh, pastor's kid, thought I had it together, but was so ignorant of my many sins and didn't really think they were that bad because I would look at other people and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. God, if there's people like that here tonight, help them, Lord, to, to see the things in their heart that are not right, the little attitudes, the disrespect, the little white lies. Help them to realize that those things that they, they see as small are big in your eyes, Lord. And it's not that you hate them for these sins, but God, you're like a doctor that sees all sin like cancer. And you wanna get in there and remove it because you love us and you want us to be healed and whole. God, I pray for the people here who are given to sin in any way. Lord, help them to turn from it. I pray that you'd make the way of escape so much more attractive than the path that they're on now. God, we love you and we ask that you'd help us, Lord. We need your help constantly. We're, we're sinners, but we're sinners in the hands of a loving God. We're so thankful for that, Lord. We love you. We give you this night. We give you this time. In your name, amen.